This podcast is sponsored by Talkspace. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and Talkspace, the leading virtual therapy provider, is encouraging people to talk it out in therapy. By talking or texting with a supportive, licensed therapist at Talkspace, you'll gain insights, discover truths, and experience breakthroughs that will improve how you live and how you feel. With Talkspace, just answer a few questions online, and you'll be matched with a therapist. And because you'll meet your therapist online, you don't have to take time off work or arrange childcare. You'll meet on your schedule, whenever you feel most at ease. Plus, Talkspace works with most major insurers, and most insured members only pay a $25 copay or less. No insurance? No problem. If you want to make progress toward a mentally healthier place, Talkspace is here for you. Now get $80 off your first month with promo code SPACE80 when you go to Talkspace.com. Match with a licensed therapist today at Talkspace.com. Save $80 with code SPACE80 at Talkspace.com. Hey friends, welcome to the Elisa Childers podcast. Today we're going to talk about all things Richard Rohr. So Richard Rohr is a Franciscan friar. He's also the founder of the Center for Action and Contemplation in New Mexico. Today we're going to ask the question, is he a wise sage or is he a false teacher. So according to the Center for Action and Contemplation's website, they describe Rohr as this, a globally recognized ecumenical teacher bearing witness to the universal awakening within Christian mysticism and the perennial tradition. So his teachings are gaining influence, especially among millennials who grew up in the evangelical church, and he is particularly influential in the progressive Christian movement. He's referred to as a spiritual father, a hero, and a mentor by Jen Hatmaker. He's endorsed by progressive leaders like Rob Bell and William Paul Young, Michael Gunger, and Brian McLaren. This is just to name a few. And so as he gains popularity, it's becoming increasingly more important for church leaders to be aware of what he's teaching and how influential he is. So I'm going to take a look at his view of the Bible, the cross, and the gospel. So first, let's take a look at what Richard Rohr believes about the cross. So historically, Christians have believed believed that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, that he took our punishment upon himself. This is not only affirmed in scripture, but it's taught by Jesus himself. It goes back to the earliest creed in Christianity, which predates the New Testament by about 20 years. But according to Richard Rohr, the idea of a God who would require the blood sacrifice of his son is problem-oriented. So he wrote this about the atonement. Quote, I believe that Jesus' death on the cross is a revelation of the infinite and participatory love of God, not some bloody payment required by God's offended justice to rectify the problem of sin. Such a storyline is way too small and problem-oriented. So according to Rohr, Jesus didn't need to die on the cross. In fact, he says it's actually your false self that needs to die, not someone else. 
He refers to substitutionary atonement as a strange idea that leads to what he calls a transactional theology. But again, contrary to Rohr, scripture teaches substitutionary atonement. Jesus affirmed it along with early Christians. So if we understand Rohr's view of the cross, we're going to understand the broader picture as we zoom out to understand what he thinks the gospel is. So historically speaking, the Christian gospel is the proclamation of the good news of salvation. Uh, This has been understood through the lens of God's redemptive acts throughout history. So it began with the creation of the universe and mankind. Then, of course, sin being introduced into the world by the rebellion of Adam and Eve. But then God provided a means of redemption and reconciliation through the atoning work of Jesus on the cross. And those who accept this provision of salvation will be given eternal life with God. But for those who reject this gift of grace, the Bible describes their eternal punishment separated from God's love and goodness. However, according to Rohr, the idea uh, of a God who doles out punishment, he calls this unhealthy, cheap, and toxic. He will affirm that Jesus died, was buried, and was resurrected, but when we understand his view of the nature of Jesus, we'll see that those words get changed in meaning quite a bit. So Rohr separates Jesus and Christ into two separate entities. And while we would agree that Christ isn't just Jesus's last name, Rohr describes Jesus as being nothing more than a model and exemplar of the human and divine just united in one human body. So in Rohr's view, Christ is a cosmic reality that is found whenever the material and the divine coexist, which he says is always and everywhere. So this is an implicit denial of the deity of Jesus. And he writes, quote, we spend a great deal of time worshiping the messenger and trying to get other people to do the same. He says, Jesus did ask us several times to follow him and never once to worship him, end quote. So this cosmic Christ is a new age idea that Roar is promoting as Christian. And in fact, coming up next month, we're going to have a whole podcast dedicated to this idea of cosmic Christ and Christ consciousness with ex-New Ager Stephen Bankart. So definitely be looking out for that. So Rohr also believes that all religions share the same core truth and are all paths to truth. This is his perennialism. He also openly affirms panentheism, which is a view of the nature of God that teaches that God is in all, All is in God, but God also transcends the world. Well, this carries really troubling implications for what he thinks the Trinity is and what he thinks the nature of Christ is. Rohr says, quote, the universe is the body of God. Yes, it's the second person of the Trinity in material form, end quote. He denies original sin, the atonement, the exclusivity of Christianity, and he has an unorthodox understanding of heaven and hell and the literal second coming of Christ. So his views stand in stark contrast to the historic Christian view of the gospel. So when he talks about what Christians have historically referred to as original sin, this would be sin being introduced into the world by the sin of Adam and Eve against God, and then that sin nature being passed down to their children. Rohr says that he thinks a much truer definition would be original shame. And so instead of their sin being what separated them from a holy God, they hide because they became aware of their shame. He goes on to say that we will never have a solid experience of our own goodness and holiness unless we allow ourselves to be led to the mystical level. 
So in other words, all we have to do is realize how loved we are. We are never separated. If we feel separated, it's self-imposed. I'll post links to all of these resources that I'm getting this information from in the podcast notes and in the YouTube description so you can double check what I'm saying, read it for yourself, and find out what you think about Rohr's view of the cross and the gospel. Now, due to his books and his highly popular teachings on the Enneagram, Richard Rohr is rapidly gaining influence in the Christian church. But possibly the most troubling belief he holds is how he views the Bible. In his book, Falling Upward, Rohr refers to the Jewish scriptures as being filled with inconsistencies and falsehoods. In fact, he characterizes the New Testament gospels as being accounts that conflict with one another. He says there's no one clear theology of God, Jesus, or history presented. So to better understand how Rohr can view and interpret the scripture this way, he articulates what he calls the Jesus hermeneutic. In his book, The Divine Dance, he writes this. Scripture is a polyphonic symphony, a conversation with itself, where it plays melodies and dissonance, three steps forward, two steps back. The three steps finally and gradually went out. You see the momentum of our holy book and where it is leading history. And the text moves inexorably toward inclusivity, mercy, unconditional love, and forgiveness. He says, I call it the Jesus hermeneutic. Just interpret scripture the way Jesus did. He ignores, denies, or openly opposes his own scriptures whenever they are imperialistic, punitive, exclusionary, or tribal. Now, he doesn't offer very much biblical data to support his hermeneutic, but he does give four passages in the footnote for you to look up to find examples of when Jesus supposedly contradicted the scripture. Now, Rohr never actually defines what he means when he uses words like imperialistic, punitive, exclusionary, or tribal as the criteria that Jesus supposedly used. But for our purposes, we'll just take them at face value. But we're going to focus on the word punitive, which just means having to do with punishment punishment, and exclusionary, which relates to the exclusion of someone or something. So the four passages that Rohr offers in his footnote are Luke 4, 18 through 19, Matthew 5, Matthew 12, 1 through 8, and John 5, 1 through 23. So the first example, which is Luke 4, 18 through 19, this is where Jesus reads from the Isaiah scroll in the synagogue in Nazareth. The portion of scripture he quotes is found in Isaiah 61, 1 through 2. So Jesus says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, Rohr points out that Jesus stops mid-sentence, ignoring the next eight words from the Isaiah prophecy, which say, and the day of vengeance of our God. So Rohr notes that rather than condemn those outside the house of Israel, Jesus is pointing out Old Testament examples of God passing over widows and lepers of Israel to send sustenance and healing to the Gentiles. And then he argues that rather than declare foreigners to be God's enemies, Jesus included them. So according to Rohr, the people attempted to throw Jesus off a cliff because they became so angry at his selective reading. And he's right. Jesus did not read the Isaiah prophecy in full. Jesus said, 
Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing in verse 21. So Jesus is communicating that the primary purpose for his first coming is to bring salvation and hope to the world. This is supported in verses like John 3, 17, which say, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. But of course, this doesn't contradict the idea that the Jewish Messiah would eventually usher in this day of vengeance. Jesus didn't include this entire prophecy in the commentary because the day of vengeance hadn't happened yet. It wasn't the prophecy he was fulfilling in the present tense. New Testament scholar Daryl Bach writes this, the ultimate time of God's vengeance is not yet arrived in this coming of Jesus. The deliverance of judgment in God's plan alluded to in the omission is sorted out later in Luke. Bach goes on to explain that this is part of the already-not-yet tension of the eschatology found in the New Testament. Another Bible scholar put it this way. He said, What Isaiah sees as a double-faceted ministry, the Lord apportions respectively to his first and second comings, the work of the servant and of the anointed conqueror. So Jesus did make the point that Gentiles would be included in God's plan of salvation, but it's important to note that this is actually in harmony with the scriptures, not in contradiction. The Old Testament is peppered with hints of Gentile inclusion. Genesis 12.3 describes all the families of the earth being blessed by Israel. Genesis 18.18 and Genesis 22.18 tell us that all the nations of the earth will be blessed through Abraham. Isaiah 42.6 describes Israel as as being a light for the nations. Isaiah 60, 10 through 14, predicts that other nations will bring work, resources, and wealth to Israel. Exodus 12, 48 and 49 give instructions about how to integrate non-Jews into the community to celebrate Passover. It states this, If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land. Numbers 9, 14, Numbers 15, 13 through 16, 1 Kings 8, 41 through 43, and Isaiah 56, 6 through 8 all describe Gentiles being welcomed among God's people when they submit to his lordship and covenant. Specific Old Testament examples of Gentiles being included among God's people are Melchizedek, the non-Jewish worshiper of Yahweh, which is found in Genesis 14. There's Moses' father-in-law Jethro in Exodus 18, and Caleb, a Kenizzite, which we find in Numbers 32:12. And in case you're wondering, the Kenizzites were listed among the Canaanite tribes in Genesis 15:18 through 21. Other examples include Caleb's brother Othniel. We find this in Judges 3.9. There's Rahab the prostitute in Joshua 2, Jael the Kenite housewife in Judges 4 and 5, and Ruth the Moabite in Ruth 1.4. This is not to mention the entire population of Nineveh who believed God and repented after being preached to by Jonah. We find this in Jonah chapter 3. In fact, the case for Gentile salvation is so strong, the Holy Spirit inspired the Apostle Paul in Romans 9, 25, and 26 to quote from Hosea 1, 10, and 2, 23 to refute those who were opposing God's message. He wrote this, Those who were not my people, I will call my people, and her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, You are not my people, There, they will be called sons of the living God.
Despite Old Testament passages about Gentiles, the Jews of Jesus' day were deeply offended by his suggestion that Gentiles would be included in God's plan. Commenting on the attitude of Jews toward the Gentiles in the first century, Bible scholar F.F. Bruce noted, for centuries the Gentiles had been looked upon by the chosen people, with but few exceptions as vessels of wrath made for destruction. And certainly God had endured them with much patience. So it's not difficult to imagine why the Jewish crowd reacted with such anger toward the suggestion of Jesus that God's mercy would be sent to the Gentiles. Maybe they were hoping he would continue to quote the Isaiah prophecy and condemn the Gentiles as victims of the day of vengeance of our God, as Rohr suggests. Commentator Leon Morris wrote, Now that he appealed to God's dealing with Gentiles, that was too much. Anger swept over the whole congregation, and they set out to lynch Jesus. So, Rohr is right that Jesus quoted a portion of the prophecy, was making the point that Gentiles would be included in God's plan, and that the people were angry about it. But to suggest that Jesus was ignoring or contradicting the scriptures is erroneous. It's foreign to the text. Jesus was correcting the Jews' misunderstandings of the scriptures, not correcting the scriptures themselves. Therefore, Rohr's claim that Luke 4, 18 and 19 is an example of Jesus openly opposing the scriptures is false. The second example Rohr offers to support his thesis is from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. Rohr writes this, He, meaning Jesus, begins a series of teachings with, You have heard that it was said, summarizing a key accepted part of the law, and contrasting it with, But I say to you, bringing his own, often subversive, take on it. So it's incredibly important to note the context within which these sayings of Jesus are located. So just before the very first, you have heard it said, but I say statement, Jesus makes a bold claim about the Old Testament scriptures. Matthew 5, 17 through 18 records Jesus as saying, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until it is accomplished. Now, if that's not clear enough, in verse 19, he continues, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. The word translated as fulfill in English is the Greek word plerosai. New Testament scholar and Matthew commentator R.T. France noted that plerosa is a complicated and nuanced word. He sums up the meaning as Jesus is bringing that in which the Old Testament looked forward. His teaching will transcend the Old Testament revelation, but far from abolishing it is itself its intended culmination. So Jesus couldn't be clearer. He has not come to ignore or oppose the scriptures. He tells us plainly that he came to fulfill the scriptures, not deny them, even outlining the penalty for teachers who relax the commandments of the word of God. Then Jesus goes on to make six statements in the form of, you have heard it said, but I say to you. In the first found in Matthew 5, 21, Jesus says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. 
Here, Jesus refers to Old Testament commands regarding murder, but rather than denying them, he makes them even more difficult to uphold. So in this way, he's not subverting the Old Testament moral law, but actually strengthening it. While affirming that murder is a sin, Jesus exposes that this sin festers in the heart of every man. The next five statements follow a similar pattern, dealing with the issues of lust, divorce, taking oaths, retaliation, and the treatment of enemies. So of these six statements, R.T. France wrote, it is in each case more demanding, more far-reaching in its application, more at variance with the ethics of man without God. So there are two statements of the six that could potentially be mistaken as being subversive or in contradiction to the Old Testament. And these would be the final two that deal with retaliation and the treatment of enemies. But as we'll see, these supposed contradictions are resolved when we take a deeper look at the context. In Matthew 5, 38, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. The Old Testament does teach the concept of an eye for an eye in Exodus 21, 24, Deuteronomy 19, 21, and Leviticus 24, 20. But the original intent of the law was not to give individual Israelites permission to exact revenge on their enemies, but to give the authorities the jurisdiction to impose a just sentence. So this kept the punishment from exceeding the crime. In other words, it assured that a just outcome would be secured in the case of a violent dispute. New Testament scholars scholar Craig Blomberg remarked, this law originally prohibited the formal exaction of an overly severe punishment that did not fit a crime, as well as self-appointed vigilante action. Now Jesus teaches the principle that Christian kindness should transcend even straightforward tit-for-tat retribution. R.T. France noted that by the time of Jesus, financial penalties had replaced physical damages, so Jesus wasn't necessarily talking physical retribution. He was making the broader point that we should not demand our just due, but should show mercy. So again, rather than opposing or denying the Old Testament, Jesus is calling people to go above and beyond what was technically permitted by Old Testament case law. In a culture in which many Jews were using these Old Testament passages as a free pass to take revenge on their enemies, Jesus calls his audience to an even higher standard. We'll be right back in with Richard Rohr, wise sage or false teacher. But I want to let you know, many of you are listening to this podcast on different audio platforms like iTunes and Spotify and SoundCloud. But did you know that this podcast is now available on video format? So if you would prefer to watch me interview my guests and see our reactions, you can go to youtube.com slash Alisa Childers. Make sure you subscribe and click the bell icon because that will let you know every time we release a new video. And if you're listening on iTunes, Spotify, wherever else you you get your podcast, please leave a great review for us. It really helps with the algorithms to get the message out to more people. All right, back in with Richard Rohr, wise sage or false teacher. In Matthew 5, 43 through 44, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. 
This statement of Jesus is a bit unique in this series because in this case, he's actually not quoting solely from Old Testament scripture, but rather from the traditions of the Pharisees and scribes. You shall love your neighbor as yourself is found in Leviticus 19.18, but there's nowhere in the Old Testament scriptures where God instructs his people to hate their enemies. In fact, Proverbs 25.21 says, if your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat, and if he's thirsty, give him water to drink. Exodus 23, 4-5 instructs the Israelites to go out of their way to help an enemy when their ox wanders away or is lying helpless under its load. Leviticus 19, 18 declares that you should not take vengeance, but you should love your neighbor as yourself. Now, there are some complicated passages in which God commands Israel to go to war against an enemy nation, exacting his judgment for their sin, like the situation we find in Deuteronomy 7, 2. And then there's the psalmist declaring that he hates those who God hates in Psalm 139, 21, and 22. But here, Jesus isn't denying or opposing the scriptures. He's actually denying and opposing the Pharisees' misinterpretation of the scriptures. It wasn't the scriptures that recommended hating our enemies, but human tradition. Therefore, Rohr's claim that Matthew 5 illustrates a point in time in which Jesus was in any way ignoring, denying, or openly opposing the scriptures is once again false. The final two passages of scripture that Rohr tries to use to support his hermeneutic are Matthew 12, 1 through 8, and John 5, 1 through 23. Now, both of these verses are listed without commentary. In the Matthew 12 passage, the Pharisees criticized the disciples for plucking heads of grain to eat on the Sabbath, accusing them of breaking the law. But the disciples didn't actually break the law. In fact, Deuteronomy 23:25 talks about the Sabbath and it says this, if you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. So what the disciples broke was the traditions and misinterpretations the Pharisees had added to the law. Therefore, Jesus did not ignore, deny, or oppose the scriptures. But once again, he was correcting the interpretation of the Jewish leaders. In the John 5 passage, Jesus heals a man who had been an invalid for 38 years. He performed this miracle on the Sabbath, which the Jews categorized as breaking the law. According to the Jewish leaders, healing constituted work. Now, work was what was forbidden on the Sabbath, according to Exodus 20.10, which says, But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, or your son, or your daughter, your male servant, or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. But once again, we find Jesus correcting the misinterpretation of the Jewish leaders over what constituted work. So according to Matthew, this was an example of the Jews persecuting Jesus, not an example of Jesus breaking the law. In fact, we find Jesus in complete agreement with the Old Testament scriptures here. So when examined within their cultural and biblical context, not one of the passages Rohr offers holds any water. Jesus never ignored, denied, or opposed the scriptures. In fact, he held them as being the highest authority and often corrected the religious leaders on their traditions, faulty interpretations, and additions to the word of God. 
Now, if we're going to look to Jesus to inform our hermeneutic, which is basically uh, how we interpret the Bible, we should understand what he actually taught about the Old Testament scriptures during his life on earth. And he had quite a bit to say. He affirmed many times over that the scriptures are the word of God. In Matthew 15, 3, he chastises the religious leaders for breaking the commandment of God. He continues in verse 4, For God commanded, Honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father and mother must die. So here, he's referring to prophecies from Exodus 20, 12, Leviticus 19, 3, and Deuteronomy 5, 16. Notice that Jesus quotes three different Old Testament books and states, for God commanded. In Mark 7, 8 through 13, he criticized the Pharisees for leaving the commandment of God because they were adding their own traditions to scripture. He told them that they void the word of God by your tradition. In Matthew 22, 31 through 32, just before quoting Exodus 3, 6, he says, have you not read what God said to you? Now, compare this with the criteria Rohr uses in his Jesus hermeneutic, claiming that Jesus contradicted scripture whenever it was imperialistic, punitive, exclusionary, or tribal. Here in Matthew 13, we have a clear example of Jesus affirming a section of scripture that is both exclusionary and punitive by affirming that God commanded the punishment of death for reviling father or mother. Jesus also indicated that the Old Testament scriptures were inspired by God. So one day he was teaching a large crowd in the temple courts and he encountered some Pharisees and they had an exchange of words. And Jesus appealed to the inspiration of scripture to help them understand that the Messiah is more than just a descendant of David. He said this, how is it then that David, speaking by the spirit, called him, meaning the Messiah, Lord? So here Jesus himself gives the definition for divine inspiration. He affirmed that David, along with other biblical writers, was speaking by the Spirit when they wrote the scriptures. Biblical scholar John Wenham noted that whenever Jesus said, it is written, he was also appealing to the inspiration of scripture. He wrote, it is clear that Jesus understood it is written to be equivalent to God says. In fact, Jesus and his apostles quote the Old Testament by using the phrase, it is written or its equivalent over 90 times in the New Testament. Jesus also believed that the Old Testament scriptures are authoritative for Christians as the objective source for truth. Of course, we know this when we go to the scene where Jesus is being tempted by the devil in the wilderness. As God incarnate, Jesus could have called down a legion of angels. He could have employed any means of defense to ward off the temptation of the enemy. But what did he do? He chose to quote scripture. New Testament scholar Leon Morris notes that when Jesus responds to the devil with it is written, this quote points to the reliability and unchangeability of scripture. For Jesus to have found a passage in the Bible that bears on the current problem is to end all discussion, end quote. Jesus' high view of the authority of the scripture stands in contrast with Rohr's claim that Jesus ever opposed them. Jesus also affirmed that the scriptures were historically reliable. He continually referred to Old Testament characters as actual people who lived in real times and places throughout history. He mentioned Abel and Noah, Luke, Abraham, Lot, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, Solomon, Elijah, Elisha, Jonah, and Zechariah. 
He also described events like the institution of circumcision, the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah, the miracle of manna, Moses lifting the snake in the wilderness, and David eating showbread. Jesus referred to all of these events as real history. And if that weren't enough, Jesus affirmed two of the most disputed Old Testament stories. So some skeptics claim that the great flood and the story of Jonah and the whale never actually happened. And yet, Jesus affirmed that both were historical. He does this in Matthew 24, 37 and 38, and Matthew 12, 40. In fact, he actually compared the historicity of the story of Jonah with the historicity of his own resurrection, a historical event that even the Apostle Paul claimed could support or discredit Christianity based on its truthfulness. So it's also common for skeptics to claim that Daniel could not have really been a prophet because some of his predictions were frankly just a bit too accurate to have been written before the events they describe. But Jesus affirms that Daniel was an actual person and a real prophet in Matthew 24, 15. In Luke eleven fifty through 51, Jesus described world history as being from the foundation of the world to this generation. And then he paralleled that to the first and last prophets in the Hebrew canon, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah. This demonstrates that he believed the scriptures accurately described history and predicted future events. Jesus also introduced the idea that the scriptures are inerrant or without error. In Matthew 22, the Sadducees, which were a group that did not believe in the resurrection of the dead, they tried to trip Jesus up with a question about the afterlife. But Jesus corrected them in verse 29 by saying, you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. It's clear that Jesus viewed the scriptures as being without error and the standard for truth by comparing the perfect word of God with the errant conclusions of the Sadducees. This is further supported by a statement Jesus made when he was about to be stoned by the Jews for claiming to be one with the Father. In John 10, 35, he said, the scripture cannot be broken, thus claiming that the scriptures were the infallible standard for truth. The very statement, the scripture cannot be broken, should be sufficient to refute Richard Rohr's Jesus hermeneutic because it demonstrates that Jesus believed the scriptures were never to be ignored, denied, or opposed. Jesus also affirmed the idea that God's word will never pass away. This is a common theme that's found in both Old and New Testaments. And he couldn't have endorsed this more plainly than he did in the passage we analyzed from the Sermon on the Mount when he said, Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For I assure you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all things are accomplished. This speaks to to the imperishability of the Old Testament scriptures. Jesus also said, it's easier for heaven and earth to disappear than for the least stroke of a pen to drop out of the law in Luke 16, 17. Once again, this is Jesus asserting that he did not come to ignore, deny, or oppose the scriptures, but to fulfill them completely. Just after his resurrection, we find Jesus on the road to Emmaus, where he encountered two of his followers who didn't recognize him. This is found in Luke 24, 13 through 35. They began talking about how disappointed they were that Jesus had been crucified and how they had hoped he would have been the one to redeem Israel. In verse 25, Jesus scolds them for being slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Then verse 27 explains, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. 
It's important to note that the first thing Jesus wanted these followers to know right after his resurrection is that everything Moses and the prophets recorded in scripture was about him. He placed the utmost importance on the reliability of the Old Testament scriptures and the events they prophesied. So in contradiction to Rohr's Jesus hermeneutic, the Gospels record Jesus himself using language that is highly exclusionary and punitive. So Luke 12, 51 records Jesus saying, Do you think I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. In Matthew 10, 34, Jesus says, Do not think I came to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. He continues in verses 35 through 38 that he has come to set man against his father and a daughter against her mother. He describes what life will be like for those who choose to follow him. He predicts that following him will cause enemies to be found in the same household. He requires believers to deny themselves, take up their crosses, and follow him, even going so far as to say that anyone who does not do this is not worthy of him. In several of his parables, Jesus describes his kingdom. He ends with people being excluded. In Matthew 25, 1-13, Jesus tells the parable of the ten virgins who were all invited to meet the bridegroom for a marriage feast. Five were wise and brought oil for their lamps, but five were foolish, bringing no oil to replenish their lamps. When the bridegroom came to open the door, the five foolish virgins had gone to buy oil and missed the opportunity to go into the marriage feast. At that point, Jesus explains that the door closed, leaving the foolish virgins excluded from the feast. Even after they came back and pleaded to be let in, the bridegroom sent them away. In Matthew 25, 14 through 30, Jesus tells the parable of the ten talents, which ends in a similar exclusion of the servant who hid his talent in the ground. In this case, the wicked servant is not only excluded from entering the joy of your master, but was also cast into outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And just after the parable of the ten talents, Jesus describes the final judgment, in which he will separate people into two groups, sheep and goats. To the sheep on his right, he will say, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. But to the goats on his left, he will say, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Just these three parables alone demonstrate that not only did Jesus never ignore, deny, or oppose the scriptures whenever they were punitive or exclusionary, but he commonly used language himself that was not only exclusionary, with many people being excluded from his kingdom on Judgment Day, but also punitive, with people being cast into outer darkness and eternal fire. So in addition to using punitive and exclusionary language, Jesus performed punitive and exclusionary acts. In Matthew 21, 12 through 17, and John 2, 13 through 22, he physically drove the money changers out of the temple for making God's house a den of robbers, even using a handmade whip, according to John's account. In Luke 10, 13 through 15, Jesus pronounced woe on the cities of Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum for not repenting, even after mighty works had been done in them. He compares these cities to Sodom and Gomorrah, which were destroyed by God for their blatant rejection of God's ways and for their immorality. Jesus told them that Judgment Day would be even more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah than it would be for them. In his Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 7, 21 through 23, 
Jesus states plainly that not everyone who says to him, Lord, Lord, will be allowed to enter his kingdom in heaven. To those who do not do the will of his Father in heaven, he will exclude by saying, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. One often overlooked source for Jesus' words is the book of Revelation. In his letter to the Christians in Pergamum, in Revelation 2, 12 through 17, Jesus urges the Christians to repent for their sin of eating food sacrificed to idols and for their sexual immorality. If they do not repent, Jesus promises to war against them with the sword of his mouth, in verse 6. To the church in Thyatira, Jesus declares that he will cast the woman Jezebel on a sickbed and strike her children dead for leading Christians into sexual immorality. These are hardly the words of someone seeking to ignore, deny, or oppose anything that is punitive or exclusionary. So it's clear that Richard Rohr's Jesus hermeneutic not only fails to offer any scriptural support, but taken as a whole, the biblical data gives us an entirely opposite view of how Jesus handled the scriptures. So if I were to give an accurate Jesus hermeneutic, it would go something more like this. Just interpret scripture the way Jesus did. He acknowledges, affirms, and openly declares his own scriptures, even when they seem to be imperialistic, punitive, exclusionary, or tribal. The truth is that Jesus never once declared or implied that the scriptures were anything but fully truthful and should be obeyed. If a Christian were to adopt Rohr's hermeneutic, they would be left with nothing but their own personal conscience, moral compass, thoughts, feelings, and preferences to guide them as they try to discover what in scripture is true and what is false. This would no doubt lead to a God constructed in their own image. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. But according to Richard Rohr, we should look to the best person we know to be our authority for what is right. He wrote this, if you are meditating on a Bible text, Hebrew or Christian, and if you see God operating at a lesser level than the best person you know, then that text is not authentic revelation. It's as simple as that. So Rohr suggests not only to go with your own conscience, but to look at who you think is a good person. If the Bible says something that that person wouldn't do, you can reject the Bible in favor of your friend. So Christians would be wise to reject the way Richard Rohr reads the Bible in favor of what Jesus really taught about the scripture, that it is the inspired and authoritative word of God. So hopefully this was helpful for you today to just give a very basic flyover of why I believe the teachings of Richard Rohr are dangerous. So to answer the question, is Richard Rohr a wise sage or is he a false teacher? I think it's very evident that he is in fact a false teacher. Hey, thanks so much for watching or listening today. If you found this content helpful, please go on over to iTunes and leave a great review, or you can subscribe and click the bell icon on YouTube to know whenever we release a new video. If you want to find out how you can come alongside the ministry in a more meaningful way, check out patreon.com slash alisachilders.
Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Check out our great selection of garage and utility lighting options in stock, ready to take home today. We carry everything to help you illuminate whatever project you're working on. Shop garage and utility lighting products in store at your nearest Menards. You can also view all of our entire selection of lighting options today on Menards.com. Save big money at Menards.